0: Uh, I have lots of handouts this week, so we're going to keep somebody busy who wants to help me with handouts. We'll give you the first glump here. Thank you. The uh, topic today is to do the other half, if we want to call it that, of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Because we stopped at verse 24 last week. Spent an entire hour on those first three verses, four verses. Um, In the handout that you've received, we have today's text on the top. Then I attached a parallel of Galatians 3 and Romans 3. Because Philip reminded me that they are basically hand in hand and glove type of texts. And uh, he had said that in his memorization, he's memorized both. And to read them in parallel is quite extraordinary when you realize they're written 10 years apart. Galatians came first, 10 years later, we've got Romans. And his ver- his message doesn't change, at least not. Dramatically, and you can see even by virtue of this the consistency of Scripture on some very heavy and detailed theological parts. As I like to do um, with our text, I'd like to read as a group. We'll read again what we read last week: is verses twenty-one to twenty-six together. So we have an idea of what we're all. What we're all studying this morning starting with verse 21 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's it, we'll we'll stop there. What we did last week is we then looked at eight, is it eight, yep, eight major words that are found in these verses. And if we don't understand these words, we don't understand the text. So I'll write them up here on the board for us so we can look at them. of as a recap, not everyone was here last week. Um, we have the word righteousness. justified and each of these are used four times each in this passage. There's also the glory of God, faith, grace, redemption, (coughs) sin, and propitiation. (laughs) If you understand all these words and their biblical background, you understand all of theology. It's really quite amazing that this is all found just in verses 21 through 26. And as I mentioned last week, I have books on my shelf on every single one of these topics. If I were to have gathered them, it would have been a stack probably chest high. The amount of literature, the amount of study of these concepts are huge. I could, I've done entire classes on just the glory of God. We discussed faith. We just, this is last week, we, stuck, we defined righteousness, we defined justified, or justification, actually, I <laughs> it. should have. Justification. Alright, so what is righteousness? What is the word righteousness? Right, speaking That. Um. That's more justification. justification. They're very similar. I mean, they're almost synonyms. <laughs> Um, and even last week, we struggled with this because righteousness is an embodiment of being declared from via justification being declared right or not guilty. Justification is the act by which that declaration is made. looked at faith. So what is faith? Trust. Don't quote Hebrews at me. Come up with something. (coughs) Belief. Belief, yes. And trust. And trust. Dependence. Dependence, okay. That's, That's actually good too because you can't have faith until you realize you are unable to do anything on your own. It's not something that you grit your teeth really hard and you believe hard enough and then it comes true. You can you know, tap your heels together and suddenly you're in Oz. Um, that isn't how it works. It isn't an act of your own that creates something. It's a belief that something has already been created for you and you believe in its uh, efficacy. We talked about redemption briefly, very briefly, because it was in the last word in uh, verse 24. And that is the idea of being redeemed. In other words, a slave could be redeemed by someone paying the debt that they had. And so they were redeemed through a ransom or a payment. All of these are very interesting. We also talked about sin. And what is sin? Sin is the breaking away of the will of God to the Greek word to miss the mark, as they say. And obviously, you need to go listen to the tape, because we just did all of that in about four minutes. and last week we spent an entire hour on this. Uh, We really tried to look at these in depth. So we've kind of looked at righteousness, justification. We just simply said, okay, we'll move past that because it's such a big topic. Uh, We did faith, grace, redemption, and sin. Looks like we have one left. Just one little one. Just one little one as I was telling Tom earlier, I said, this is one of the $10 words of scripture that because of inflation is now a $100 word. It's <laughs> a big word, but we'll get to it in a second because I want to think about it this way. <clears throat> Though there's some of us who may remember the, um, the old evangelism program called Evangelism Explosion. And the methodology of evangelism explosion is a way of having a conversation starter with someone in a bit of a confrontational manner. But the idea is to ask someone, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? And then wait for their answer. If they would say, well, sure, because that's the typical answer. Why? Because I'm a good person. Then you say, so why will God let you in? And if they answer, because I'm a good person, then you can present the gospel to them because they they don't understand the gospel. But there's a fellow who came along and he said, I think there needs to be a third question. And that's the question that we will talk about here today. So if the first question is, if you die tonight and go to heaven, you say, sure. And you give the answer, you know, because Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I am therefore redeemed. And then you ask the question, why did he have to die? Can you answer that question? Why did Jesus have to sacrifice himself? I mean, we we don't take that next step in these conversations usually. Because when we define the gospel, we define the gospel as the act of Jesus' sacrifice. Not truly going past to the why. And that's the $100 word, propitiation. Yeah. That's the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sins. Correct. I'm trying to remember where that's at. Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews okay. yes. We'll be quoting that in a minute. Oh. Um, propitiation is an unusual word. It's not a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's not an English word. It's a Latin word which drives all of us nuts because I'm trying to look into what does that mean. Uh, You try to break a word like propitiation down, uh, you are left with propitiation. I dare you to find a definition of pitiation anywhere. (laughs) It doesn't exist. It's not pulled apart from its pre- prefix. Drove me nuts this past two weeks, trying to figure out what is piteation if it's pro <laughs> or alongside pitiation. what does this mean? And it's such a key word it's used four times in the New Testament. The definition of propitiation is to appease, pacify, or placate the wrath of God via a gift. I'll oh, say that again. To appease, pacify, or placate the wrath of God via a gift. Now, we're probably of similar understanding and um, at least reasonably handshake um, understanding of theology. And so we're not going to have a controversy in this room, I hope. You guys had a controversy years ago. You said that they were teaching in Romans 3, and after they taught Romans 3, the class quit because they disagreed with the theology that we're talking about today. So, if you all leave next week, I know what happened, and there are ringleaders back there. No, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But isn't it interesting that this type of controversy revolves around a word like this? Propitiation, the idea of appeasing a wrathful God, is very uncomfortable and unpopular. The idea that God wants to punish us because he's capricious and just this pagan angry deity. Think of the Mayans to appease the God. They would tear the heart out of someone and throw them into a volcano. Hopefully so the volcano wouldn't erupt and kill them all. And obviously it worked because the volcano didn't, eru- didn't erupt. See, we told you it didn't happen. We gotta do it again next week. After a while you have population control issues. But anyway, um, I mean, who gets to be next? It's also sub-Christian. Because is a God is love? God is love. God is not wrathful. He's not out there going, Gotcha! Squeeze you until you destroy you. Get rid of the bad person. We aren't comfortable with that. And you know this happens if you're in conversations with people and you start talking about punishment or hell or any type of the, what you're doing is wrong. Then they'll say, well, who says? And that uh, starts a whole other conversation. But the idea that God is wrathful is a problem. So much so... I have a handout. Okay. I have a handout. It's a new job for me. A new job say. for you this week. It's a new job. The idea of propitiation and a wrathful God was so much a problem that Bible translations began to remove the word. And I have a chart for you of five different modern translations showing how each one of them dealt with this particular word in their translation. I'll wait till everybody has it and those of you who are online or on the uh, on the video uh, can look it up when I uh, post this class on the Inner altar site later today all these handouts I, I put back up on the thing All right. so you see a chart five different translations the ESV which we use in our church which I've been teaching from then you have the NIV The NIV uses what phrase? Instead of propitiation, sacrifice sacrifice of atonement. Now that's kind of a definition because they're trying to, the translation philosophy of the NIV is to try to make it as if you and I are talking. So a conversational style. Dynamic equivalence is the tip, the technical term. Then you have the RSV. The RSV, when it first came out in its whole Bible form in 1952, has a different word than propitiation. As expiation. Just make it worse. Hmm? Just make it way Take a hard word, just put another. <laughs> just put another prefix on it, like it like that <laughs> solves the problem. Now what you may or may not know is that the ESV that we use is actually a revision of the RSV. So the old RSV that was around forever, the rights to that were purchased by a Bible Society and revised it and fixed some of the problems. Then you have the NASV, New American Standard Bible, used propitiation at least until the 1995 edition. There have been three revisions since then, which they changed it. Then the NLT, you may not know what the NLT is, that's the New Living Translation. It's an actual translation with the philosophy of the Living Bible behind it. Very conversational. And they use the phrase sacrifice for sin. Again, that's kind of a definition, But it's not, it doesn't carry the weight, at least in my opinion. (coughs) So, right away, you can see that there's trouble in trying to deal with this $100 word. Now, why would the RSV change it from propitiation to expiation? word well, propitiation sure. is a problem because I couldn't figure out well what's the difference. Like you just told us that the, the ESV was taken from the RSV so you can't say you, you just say, Actually the RSV was, was first. Yeah. Right. And they fixed it by taking it back to the word propitiation. The RSV took The word propitiation that was in the King James Version and took it out and changed it to expiation. And here's the reason. Because propitiation has embedded in it God's wrath. The word expiation has embedded in it covering. So just, just follow me here. You know, the idea of propitiation of a gift to appease or cover the wrath of God. And the RSV came along and said, we can't deal with the wrath of God. We'll just call it a covering, which is close, but not exact. People burned the RSV back in the day for this verse and for their translation of Mm -hmm. Isaiah 714, where instead of a virgin shall conceive, they translated as a young woman and took away the virgin birth out of the Old Testament. Anyway, I I could do an entire um, multi-week classes on the differences between translations and where they came from. One fellow who took, now he was part of translation work early on in the RSV world, he later founded the Jesus Seminar, which you may or may not have heard of. This was a group of uh, quote unquote Christian scholars who took the words of Jesus and voted on which ones were authentic. <laughs> and they literally voted using marbles. So they would have red marbles for the good ones, black marbles for the bad ones, and white marbles for the ones they weren't sure, and they literally did this. Very big in the 80s and 90s? 80s and 90s. And I think, i let you borrow the Gospels that had, they actually did it in the different colors, so you could read which ones they thought were authentic. But I have the book that they ultimately pre- presented. The head of this, this is a quote regarding this issue. The doctrine of atonement, the claim that God killed his own son in order to satisfy his thirst for satisfaction is sub-rational and sub-ethical. This monstrous doctrine is the stepchild of a primitive sacrificial system in which the gods had to be appeased by offering them some special gift, such as a child or an animal. This is out there. Uh, uh, Judaism. Not not the people, but the animals. This This is ancient, this is basically saying that what we believe, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross didn't happen like that and wasn't for that reason. And it's because they're struggling with the concept of wrath. If you take away the wrath of God, then you're kind of left with a benign God who kind of lets you do what you want. So to understand propitiation, we have to understand the wrath of God. Now, I know this wasn't on our list, but it's embedded in this understanding of salvation and the understanding of Romans. So, as I wrote here, I, had to write, I have to write some of this stuff out and then read it to you because I have to be precise. We're talking about theology, and if I just wing it, I'll end up being burned as a heretic. So, let me read it. <laughs> yes? Um, if we take away the wrath of God, you become what? What did I say? I don't know. I, don't know. He I was. Right. Well, essentially, you know, just benign. benign. Oh, a benign. benign. You're left with a benign God. Yeah, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't in my notes. I just. That word just popped in my head. See, I get in trouble? And then you got to write it down. And I'm quoted. But it. right, yeah. <laughs> it's right. You take away mm-hmm. the wrath of God. You're left with this, you know, nice sweet old guy who says, "Pat you on the back." Pastor Jim even referred to it briefly, not directly today, and this idea that God is in it for our good, to make us feel better. That that's what this is all. That's what Christianity's all about: is to make us feel better. And there is an element of truth to that, but at the same time. If, you, if that's all you're seeking, then be a Buddhist, for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. Because there's no consequence, and there's no act of commitment. You just are, you know, it's this, this deity that makes you feel better about yourself. So, obviously, if you read the Bible at all, that the Bible teaches... No, I'm sorry, I need to rephrase this. Those who are critics of the wrath of God say to us, obviously the Bible is teaching of a God who is an irrational deity, who is throwing a temper tantrum and demands a sacrifice to make things right. Mm. Think about Elijah And the priests of Baal and Elijah, kind of the, uh, well, it was a prime time TV show. You know, who's going to win the battle? But think about the, the priests of Baal. They were terrified. We have got to make our God wake up. And we can do this by, you know, calling down the fire and we can... We're going to dance and we're going to cut ourselves and we're going to go into all this frenzy because this God needs to be appeased. These were the ones that would sacrifice children to the God Molech to appease the God. And Elijah comes along and said, You got it all wrong. So let's throw water on the logs. Let's actually create a pit. And a ring around it and fill it with water. We're gonna make it such that you cannot even strike a match and make this work. You could bring in a flamethrower from the future and it ain't gonna burn up. And then he goes, okay, boom. And of course, the priests were just overwhelmed. They couldn't believe this demonstration of God's power. But I think have to think about those priests that believed so strongly that they had to do something to appease their God. And that's what the critics of the wrath of God see our God of the Bible as that's all He is. It's impossible to read the Old and the New Testament and miss the fact Not the idea, but the fact that God is angry with sin and wrathful towards sinners. You cannot miss it. You have to really twist yourself to miss this idea that God is not happy with his people. Haven't we just studied two and a half chapters of Romans that basically says we're all sinners and we deserve condemnation? That's what the first two and a half chapters are all about. If you come to Romans chapter three, verse 20 and have read the first two and a half chapters, you're kind of looking, sitting there going, well, this isn't good. Because Paul's very clear, he said, yeah, the pagans are bad. Yeah, the Jews are bad. Oh yeah, you're bad too all have sinned. There's no excuse. Psalm 7 verse 11 God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. Jeremiah thirty-two, thirty-one: From the day it was built until now this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. John 3.36, John the Baptist is preaching and says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains in him. Jesus himself, in Matthew 25.46, sinners will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. And then in this morning's passage, Pastor Jim read Matthew 10, 18, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Quoting Jesus. Romans 1:18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by wickedness. Romans 2, verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. If someone says, I can't believe in a God of wrath, then you can't believe in a God of the Bible. It's very clear. But, God is love. Oh, wait. But God is wrath. No, God is love. No, God is wrath. No, God is love. Is there a word that combines wrath love? I mean, that's... He's both. It's true. God is love. God is a... However, God is a spirit, undivided, singular, and uncompounded. He is one. Capital O. One, without body, parts, or passions. And when we study His attributes, the various attributes of God, we study them individually because we cannot understand them collectively. It's too much. We have limitations in our understanding of the greatness and vastness of God. So we talk about His... Sovereignty, his immutability, his uh, all-powerful, all-knowing, wrathful, uh, oh, loving. Uh, So do we get to pick and choose which ones we like? Is God a menu board at McDonald's? No. You get the whole sandwich. No choices. This is it. This is who he is. He is both wrathful and loving. Going back to the analogy in uh, to C.S. Lewis today, he's not a tame lion. and Not a tame lion. We want a we God who's powerful, but we want him to be. Yep. Don't, don't open the here, you know, or just my grandma, you know, something. Yeah, something, yeah. Something that's not in his character. That I can't, that I can accept. If anyone says, I can't believe in a God who... Yeah. They're not understanding who God is, the totality of God. So, if someone says, but I I, I believe that God is love, and then you have to ask, do you believe that God is just? That's the counter to that statement. Well, of course. All right, so that means there is right and wrong, right? And then you kind of have to lead them into their inconsistency in the statement that God cannot be a God of wrath. He is not going to punish sinners. Here's one way to look at it. Spurgeon said it this way. God is as severely just as if he has no love. But he is also... As intensely loving as if he has no justice. He's both. It's both and. And I'm gonna quote from Terry Johnson. It's in this magazine, the, the July issue. It came last week, and I started reading going, holy smoke, this is for my class. I love it. It's called The Banner of Sovereign Grace Truth. I'd never heard of this magazine before, uh, but I came across it this year. It's the official publication of the Heritage Reform Congregations. Okay, some really good writing in here. Terry Johnson writes this, if God were to wink at sin, if we if he were to ignore evil, if he were to tolerate injustice, if he were to leave the innocent at the mercy of the ungodly, unrescued, unavenged, unvindicated, and eternally undistinguished from the wicked, sharing the same space, the same destiny, same reward, and the same punishment, then God would not be good, or kind, or righteous, or just. If God is good, because that's another question you say, do you believe God is good? If God is good, then there is consequence for evil or wrong or sin. God cannot abide sin. God is holy, pure, perfect. When sin comes, He cannot have it and will not have it. He calls us to holiness and yet we fall short and cannot enter into His presence on the day of judgment. We cannot be perfect even though Jesus calls us in Matthew 5.48, be perfect therefore as our heavenly father is perfect. And here's the irony, we human beings in Major League Baseball will create all stars out of people who get outs 75% of the time. The All Star game here in a couple of weeks, they're announcing all these All Stars, and these guys bat 300 out of 1,000. That means 7 out of 10 times they fail, and we're going, woohoo, celebrate, you guys are so good. There has never been anyone on the All Star team that batted 1,000. Because if they had 1,000 at bats and got out once, their percentage would be 999. And that isn't perfect. There's no way. We celebrate failure and call it good. God looks at that and goes, No, you have to bet a thousand for your entire life in every action and activity, wherever you go, in every thought and every deed. Well, phooey on that. It's too late. I already messed up. Now what do I do? And humanity has spent eons trying to figure a way to work their way to God. Work their way to perfection. Saying, well, the Jews would say, if you're circumcised, then that's okay. And you might have... Others would say, if you do this and this and this and this and this, then you're okay. This all brings us to the word propitiation. Ha! I have spoken for a half hour and we haven't gotten to the word yet. Let's look at this. Here's some interesting little tidbits on it. The Greek is the word hil There is no English equivalent to the word Hilisterion, which is why it's been so difficult to translate. That's why they use a Latin word, the best they could get close to it. Now remember, in the Old Testament, they translated the Hebrew into Greek. They used the word Hilisterion in the Old Testament 16 times. So in the Septuagint, that's what LXX stands for, meaning the 70 Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they used Hillisterion 16 times. And in every instance in the Old Testament, this word is rendered in our Bibles. As mercy seat. You go, wait, why didn't they use the word propitiation? Because they were translating a Hebrew word. description of the Ark of the Covenant. And they describe how it's going to be built and how it's going to be shaped and what it's going to look like. And you have this trunk, for lack of a better word, that has a lid on it. The lid is the hilasterian. The lid is the covering. Remember our expiation word? It's the covering. And then there's the two cherubim kind of hanging over it. Then in Leviticus 16 and 17, it describes the Day of Atonement where the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies once a year. That high priest first, before he came in, Would sacrifice a bull out in the main area among all the people to as a sacrifice for his own family then he would sacrifice a goat and go into the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle the blood of the goat on the hilasteria on the mercy seat and that blood would cover the sins of the people. So he's out sacrificing the goat, cover the sins of his family, he then comes in to sacrifice for the sins of the people. And that's why you have the Yom Kippur, the annual idea of the um, Day of Atonement. Yeah? I think I've heard one time that there's a certain kind of a priest would take for the people um, a certain kind of almost almost like a plant reed. They would tie it up and they would dip it in the blood and they'd sprinkle it upon the people. I've heard that as like the expiation, but is that an incorrect? I mean, it's an old old it, might, it might be because that expiation. would be a covering. covering. It's not the propitiation right. of which, in the New Testament, the difference is it isn't just a covering. It's an appeasement of the ultimate wrath of God, which is explained in our text a little bit. I'll get to that in a minute. Now, this word, propitiation, is used four times in the New Testament. Actually, five times. Sorry, four. Romans 3.25. Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, and 1 John 4.10. There is another time it's used, which is really interesting. I've read an entire sermon on this. It's used in Luke 18.18 with the parable of the publican and the sinner or in the Pharisee, I mean, the publican and the Pharisee, where the Pharisee says, oh, you know, I'm so good, and I pray, and I do all this, and the sinner, the publican says, Lord have pilasterian on me, a sinner. It's actually translated as mercy once. It's translated as propitiation everywhere else, which further confuses all of us, Mm -hmm. but I just thought you would find that interesting in case you run into it. So, I'm continuing my logical presentation here because I have another handout. (laughs) To show you these $100 words in a chart. First came across this chart of James Montgomery's voice's commentary on Romans, so I couldn't just copy it out of the book, it wouldn't have translated right, so I recreated it for you. And for the first time in my own theological life, all of this came together because the chart is a wonderful visual representation of salvation I'll wait till everybody has one I know this is a lot to take in this is this is we, this could be a dive into doctrine class on Wednesday nights. I mean, seriously, we're talking about the idea of propitiation. It's seemingly a simple word, but it's so full. Now look at this chart. Bottom left-hand corner starts with Jesus Christ. His act on the cross is a propitiation to the Father. A Well, you want to call it a covering? Okay. But you can also call it an appeasement. It is a solution to the problem of sin. Then God the Father justifies us based on that act. It's not something we've done, we're not on the left side of this triangle, we're not there. We didn't go from the bottom to God and say, look at all the good things I've done. Look at all the money I gave to missions. Look at all the charitable things I've done. No, there's no indication at all. In fact, there's no arrow going from man to God. Jesus does the propitiation, therefore God justifies, makes us righteous, in his eyes, because he sees Jesus's sacrifice, the bottom of the line is the redemption that Jesus does for us. It's the ransom for our sin. God, Jesus doesn't propitiate us because we have no power. We have no. We're not going to say, ah, squash, squash, squash. Terrible, terrible, terrible. No, we are being redeemed by the act of christ it is paid in full when christ was on the cross at the very last he says tetelestai it is finished it is complete it is over everything has been completed here Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Then in Hebrews 10.12, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Many years ago when we were in college with uh, the Bible Department at Grand Canyon with the great Dr. Martin who was our theology professor, I was reminded of this when I was studying this. I was talking to Lisa about it last night. And I was in a doctrine class where Dr. Martin stood up in front of everybody and said, the blood of Christ cannot save you. Of course, he intentionally said that to get us all going, of course it does. And in fact, one guy stood up to confront Dr. Martin in the class. He's an older man. Older man red-faced, and he's going, but the hymn says nothing but the blood of Jesus. (laughs) I was Dr. Martin's uh, assistant, teaching assistant, and we were in his his office later, and he's going, that was a first. I've never had someone quote a hymn book at me (laughs) as if it were scripture. But then we had this long discussion, he says, here's the point I'm trying to make. If it was just the blood, he could have cut his finger and said, uh, squeeze a little bit, there you go, like the Day of Atonement. The idea of sprinkling the blood, he could have just done that, but no he had to die like the animal. The sacrifice was his death on the cross and therefore his death conquered death in addition to taking care of the sin. The only way you can take care of the sin is through death because the wages of sin is death. Exactly. And also going to the so as Jesus being that propitiation, the full his full death, the turban on the either side, I just love that thing I was like 20 years ago. I can't remember where I read it. You open the tomb, there's two angels sitting huh? each on the side of where Jesus lay. and it's an exact image of the mercy seat. And that was a permutiation, that, that same yeah, symbi- very, symbolism. Very, the symbolism is so powerful. And we miss this because we went across the word and go, I don't know what that word is, and we just keep reading. But realize how foundational this idea is. It it brings it all together. So, so Steve, could I... Go oh, to Him? Sure. <laughs> Please do. Unless you're going to have it later, but I'm thinking of the Gettys and Christ alone. And on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God, God was satisfied. Exactly. So I, I thought of Jesus paid it off, I mean, He didn't just have to give blood, He had to give everything. Everything. Absolutely everything. For each one of us. Mm-hmm. For all time. The verses read, let's see. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace, as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Period. This was to show God's righteousness. His righteousness, because his divine forbearance, his patience, had passed over all the former sins. That covering that was done in the Old Testament merely delayed the inevitable of God's ultimate judgment on all of sin and was a picture, as Lisa mentioned, a picture of the later picture of what Jesus did to wipe it away entirely. Now let's keep going. Verse 26 I'm sorry I know we're almost over time but this is really amazing. Verse 26 it was to show his righteousness at the present time and then get what it says so that he might be just and the justifier. (coughs) Now stop for a second you mean he's both justifying and make in other words he's doing both at the same time of the one who has faith in Jesus I'm gonna quote a, um, a fellow Mark Strauss, who was teaching on this, he said this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Some time ago we had a Christian convert from Islam come to our school to lecture. In Islam, Allah is said to be both merciful and just. So Allah, God, is merciful and just. But as the fellow said, that's impossible you cannot be merciful and just at the same time because then justice is never done because always mercy is given instead now doesn't that contradict what I was saying earlier but God is love well God is merciful carry on now think with me stay with me here I'm quoting the guy Allah is just so what he is what's he always going to do he's always going to punish sin but He's merciful so that means He's always going to let people off. So how can you punish sin at the same time and let people off? It's a contradiction in God's nature. You cannot be both merciful and just, perfectly just and perfectly merciful unless what? Unless you pay for it yourself. Unless you step in and take the sacrifice for yourself. And here's the point. He is just. God is absolutely just, but He's also the justifier. He's the one who Himself sacrificed Himself to suffer and die for our sins. You understand how powerful that is? This is what separates Christianity. God became a human being. He incarnated as one of us in order to sacrifice Himself for us to allow us to be justified through the propitiation of sins. That idea of Jesus propitiating the God who then justifies us could not have happened unless God had stepped in and said, I'll take the brunt on your behalf. All you have to do is believe. Isn't that extraordinary? We miss this. We take the evangelism explosion. Will you go to heaven? Sure. Why? Uh, Why why would God let you in? Well, I mean, Jesus Christ and you can give the gospel statement and then someone says, well, why did he have to die? Can you answer that question? Now you can. It goes all the way back to Exodus, to the beginning of Scripture. This is the story of God's redemption in our lives. The whole story of Scripture pointing to Jesus, pointing to this ultimate sacrifice and this redemption and justification on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Extraordinarily deep topics. Hard to twist our minds around it and and unlock it. But we can if we take it step by step through your guidance to show us the glorious beauty of what you have done for us. It's so simple and yet so complex. And every time we come back to it, 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 it's overwhelming, and yet at the same time, it's fulfilling. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for providing for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.